Hebrews Bible Study, Part 32, Continuing to Finish Up. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. At the closing section of the book of Hebrews, the author has given the congregation a reminder by his commands that they still live in the world, though they are not of it. While he has taught them about Christ's immense, glorious, and infinite supremacy over all, with the aim of helping them stay steadfast in the Christian faith, Knowing doctrine and not apostatizing are not the whole of Christian life. Thus he adds exhortations to be free from greed, to be faithful in matters of marriage, etc. Now it is time to ensure that his teachings are maintained. First, by good teachers, that is, those entrusted with leadership in the church. If a pastor is faithful with the message of Scripture, then it is all the more likely that the congregation will be as well. In other words, the congregants are to remain hearing the word. Then, because of his real presence, there is the matter of the sacrament, which the author commends the congregation to partake in with joy, especially at their exclusive access. Through this, Believers are strengthened to undergo what Christ has gone through. Now, for verses 7 through 9 and 17, we see a matter of teachers, or the ministry of the word. Typically, in the Lutheran context anyway, the minister is ordained to the office of word and sacrament. However, this is really 
two offices which the pastor occupies. There are some ordained to teach, but not to consecrate. Many theologians come to mind as they are charged almost solely with teaching doctrine. Some are given teaching as a spiritual gift or preaching in terms of evangelism, but are not necessarily selected to perform the sacraments. That comes from Ephesians chapter 4, especially verses 11 and 12, regarding the spiritual gifts and the offices that come from them. Alternatively, the office of deacon is an example of the minister ordained to sacrament, but not word, from Acts chapter 6. That said, most ministers are ordained to both word and sacrament, hence the author exhorting the congregation to remember and obey leadership in verses 7 and 17. Historically, this is one passage which has been abused to justify pastoral tyranny, especially from Rome and increasingly in Lutheran churches. While these leaders are to be obeyed, it is in the context of the ministry of the word, both in the minister's doctrinal teachings and in his example of Christian living. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. They are charged with these matters because they are accountable to God for it. Quote, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So obedience to a pastor or other spiritual leader is not a matter of sacerdotalism, that is, overemphasis on clerical authority, but obeying that which they teach, do, and command as it is found in the word. Christians are to examine their leaders and test them, 1 Timothy chapter 3, being willing to hold these men accountable. Since that accountability is found here and in James 3 verse 1, a congregation loves their leadership not by rebellion, but by holding them accountable to the word. After all, it is not solely the minister who is charged with keeping the congregation away from false doctrines. It is the congregation who shares that responsibility. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The individual Christian in the church is to be a student of the word, fed by God's grace able to maintain that since Christ does not change, doctrine does not change. We are to discern, even if that means discerning what the pastor says and potentially finding him to be incorrect. That said, the ministry is real leadership with real authority. We cannot be spiritual anarchists who deny the 7th and 17th verses here entirely. But the authority which is spoken of is, as the office, a spiritual one. The congregation is instructed to listen to and believe their leaders while following their example for Christian living. 
Thus, pastors are charged with being a good example, teaching the word accurately and serving the people. Their disposition in doing so, however, seems to be up to the body of believers. In saying, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, the author is saying that the congregants must treat their leaders well, lest they lose all advantage of having a pastor in the first place. This means honoring the man, listening to him, and following his exhortations. While the church must still examine the cleric in what he says and does, they are not permitted to mistreat him or sin against him. Moving on to verses 10 through 16, we have a passage concerning the altar. Now, the scriptures teach the real presence of our Lord Christ in, with, and under the elements in communion. Only Christians may partake of the sacrament, which is received by faith. Hence the author speaks of an altar which those in the Jewish religious system cannot receive nor benefit from. The Christian, as part of a universal priesthood, partakes in the sacrifice of our Lord in similar fashion to how the Levitical priests partook of Mosaic sacrifices, Leviticus 5 through 7. One might opine that this cannot be the case, since the author says in the ninth verse, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Such would say, after Zwingli and the Baptists, that the eating and drinking from an altar here is a reference to faith rather than actual eating and drinking. However, just as baptism brings us a good conscience without devolving into a mere ritual washing, 1 Peter 3.21, the Eucharist brings us the very body and blood of Christ for the sake of our forgiveness and strengthening, so that it is not merely a ritual meal. The author also explains communion as a matter of sanctification. Just as Christ bore reproach outside the camp, we therefore go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In Philippians 1 verse 21, St. Paul states, To live is Christ and to die is gain, meaning that one becomes closer to our Savior by the experiences which we face in this world, before moving on into the New Jerusalem. To be reproached and persecuted is part of being conformed to his image, Romans 8 verse 29. But the author brings up eating at the altar first, before undergoing more of the slings and arrows of our sojourn here. I believe there is no other conclusion than to see that Christ strengthens our faith for just such a life as we live. We turn around after having received communion, and then we love others. First, we love our Lord and offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, or the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is consistent with the sacrifice spoken of in Psalm 116, where it becomes clear that God values our trusting and grateful hearts 
far more than the blood of various livestock. Then we turn around to do good and to share, helping our brothers and sisters in all their needs. In doing so, we make further sacrifices to God, as the 16th verse states. If someone should ask how we love God beyond praise and faithfulness, the author here answers that we love God by loving our neighbor. That the author highlights thanksgiving, praise, and service to others as sacrifices highlights the universal priesthood of believers. The Mosaic Law permitted only priests born in Aaron's line to make sacrifices, and that consisting of the blood of animals. But now that our Lord Jesus has made the atoning sacrifice once and for all, no more bloodletting or burning is necessary. Instead, each believer is now able to make sacrifices, particularly those which please God the most loving him above all through our praise, and loving our neighbors as ourselves through service. And Christ himself comes to us in the altar to strengthen us for this very task. Next week we will be finishing the text of Hebrews, and we may add a final section or study to round off our understanding and summarize everything we have learned thus far. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.